You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. One week before the 30th anniversary of the invention of the World Wide Web, Washington Post Live sat down with its creator, Sir Tim Berners-Lee. During the wide-ranging conversation, Berners-Lee discussed the complicated challenges of today's web, from the rise of disinformation to digital privacy, to his efforts to empower people to take back ownership of their data. Let's listen. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Washington Post. I'm Fred Ryan, publisher, and it's a pleasure to have you here for this uh, special edition of Washington Post Live. I have the pleasure of introducing our special guest, Mr. Tim Berners-Lee. I think all of us in Washington are used to people who claim to have invented something important. Uh, in fact, there are many people who claim to have invented the internet, maybe even some in this room. Um, but one thing that's undisputed is that Tim Berners-Lee created the World Wide Web. As a researcher at Switzerland's CERN Physics Laboratory in the 1980s, Tim was looking for a better way to share information with scientists in distant locations. The solution he developed using text, links, and the internet to make a vast trove of information universally available ultimately became the World Wide Web. In 1989, Tim's boss called his proposal for the web vague, but uh, exciting. Um, today, we have a much clearer sense of what Tim's invention could achieve. With more than a billion websites across the globe, the World Wide Web has transformed the way we communicate, shop, do business, learn, make friends, get dates, eat, sleep, and even exercise. Today, as the web nears its 30th anniversary, Tim is again enlisting support from across the globe, this time to help maintain the quality and openness of his creation and to use its power for society's good. Tim's current work is focused on privacy and the protection of personal data, resisting censorship and online spying, and expanding internet access to the developing world. This morning, we'll learn more about Tim's efforts and his views on the current challenges and opportunities of the World Wide Web. Tim will be interviewed by the Washington Post's David Ignatius. And I would just like to mention one thing. I think you've all seen over the years David's exceptional reporting and never better in my mind than recently his tremendous work on reporting on the death of our colleague Jamal Khashoggi in the aftermath. And uh, we are all so proud here to see that David was recognized for this excellent journalism with the prestigious George Polk Award, which was just announced. So now, please join me in welcoming Tim and David. Oh, absolutely. Thank you, Tim. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Thank you for coming. Thank you for watching us on uh, the live stream. Uh, as, as Fred uh, said in the introduction, this is a moment where superlatives uh, really uh, are, are appropriate. Um, we have somebody who invented uh, a technology that changes our lives every, every day. Um, I just was doing my own brief research into how Sir Tim came to be the inventor of the of the internet uh, and the time that he spent at CERN. Uh, 30 years ago next week, he submitted a paper that was called Information Management, a Proposal. 
sounds very innocuous, very modest, um, but it included the basic framework of this idea that you'd have a web of information where you would, through links, which uh, Sir Tim called hypertext links, be able to access all of this information. Uh, a quote from the CERN website uh, posted right now uh, summarizes this basic, brilliant idea in a, two sentences from Tim's writing early on. Suppose all the information stored on computers everywhere were linked. Suppose I could program my computer to create a space in which everything could be linked to everything. And that's the world that we ended up with. So, uh, Sir Tim, I, I want to welcome you and maybe ask you to begin by uh, telling us about what uh, uh, plans you, uh, your former colleagues, your foundation have to celebrate this 30th anniversary uh, as it arrives this month. Uh, tell us what's, uh, what's, what's planned. Okay, David, so uh, we're planning to do uh, a few Web Foundation people. We will be doing the 30 years of the Web retrospective in 30 hours. And so that will, uh, so we're going to, and those 30 hours will start at the origin at CERN, 8 a.m. on the 12th we will, uh, of March. We will be, uh, we'll have a little celebration at CERN. Then we will go fairly rapidly to London and have a celebration at the Science Museum. And then we will end up in Lagos. And uh, sort of some representation of, of some of the journey that the web has and is making or is in the process of making. Uh, during that, so that 30 hours starting from 8 a.m., we will mentally relive with people on Twitter each of the years. So every hour there will be a new year. At that point, you're invited to remember what you were doing or weren't doing with the web on, uh, on that date. So an accelerated uh, history of, uh, of the web. So uh, I just want to note before we go any further that if you'd like to ask uh, questions for Sir Tim, uh, either here in the audience or uh, streaming online, hashtag post live, uh, send the questions. I will, in theory, thanks to the miracle of the internet, see them on my little screen here. If it breaks down, I'm gonna uh, ask Sir Tim to fix it. Um, so, uh, least I could do. I, I thought it would be interesting uh, with this wonderful opportunity to have Sir Tim with us to look at the arc of this story from its beginnings, from the intellectual uh, creativity, uh, experimentation that led uh, Sir Tim as a, as a young man to begin to think about these ideas. Then the kind of life of the World Wide Web, as Tim uh, initially called it, uh, as it, as it built out and became so dominant. And then uh, conclude with a, a serious discussion about some of the problems that we've all sensed uh, are emerging, and some of the most creative work about how to solve those problems has been done by the founder, uh, Sir Tim. So we'll close with a, a serious and I hope searching discussion of, uh, of, uh, of those uh, issues. But let's go back to the, to the beginning and the, the origins story. Uh, I believe Sir Tim was born in 1955, 
which happens to be the same year that Bill Gates and Steve Jobs were born. Uh, momentous year, what was in the water that year. Um, and uh, I've, I noted reading Walter Isaacson's book, The Innovators, that both of your parents at some point were computer scientists, so you grew up in a world where these ideas were uh, uh, all around you. Uh, Walter uh, quotes you remembering a conversation with your father about how to make computers more intuitive. And he, he quotes you as saying, the idea stayed with me that computers could become much more powerful if they could be programmed to link otherwise unconnected information. So that, that's you as a teenage boy. And let me just ask you about the birth of an idea. Did you find as a, as a young man that you were kind of ruminating on this uh, question of how to get better connectedness, how machines could be more like the human brain? Well, it wasn't as though uh, from a little baby, uh, one moment I could speak, I was trying to uh, think of uh, design the World Wide Web. But I had a career. I was a programmer. My, um, I was the child of some of the first programmers that were uh, back in the 50s, uh, before computer science was a thing, had a name. Uh, and so, yes, I was immersed in computing uh, as a very exciting thing from the point of view of my parents. And then I got excited about electronics, so I built things. I built, um, I built things to control my model railway. And then uh, when I, as later on, I built a computer terminal because I wanted to, because I, um, I could, and because uh, partly I got thrown off using the computer at the university. Uh, I, um, I, I, I used it inappropriately, so I had to, so the <laughs> urge to have your own, your own machine becomes very, very great. So I built my own computer. And so, uh, in a way, when you have a computer, then you look at doing everything with it. Later on, so I think I was a that generation was an amazing generation to be part of because just when you're uh, at, in elementary school, you can make things with magnets and with wire and, and and nails, and then as you get as you come through high school, suddenly transistors are available. They're, they become cheap enough for a kid to buy, and then as you start building things with transistors, which get a bit complicated, and you realize that you know how to build a computer, the microprocessor comes out just at the point where I'm getting to university. So I can buy a microprocessor chip, two-inch-long chip, like 6,800 chip, if you're interested, put it into and build my own computer. So I sort of rode the way of discovering uh, computers as something which you could actually have in your house and you could use to solve all kinds of pro uh, problems. And, and I've worked at various companies and I worked as a consultant. And so I'd used to, uh, and so I'd come across things like communication protocols. I'd come across things like uh, uh, when you program a printer, how to make it make uh, graphics and screen. And, and so I'd come, uh, come across sort of text processing. And so basically uh, life, as a sort of jobbing uh, contract programmer had taken me, in fact, through all kinds of things. I ended up with all kinds of bits of uh, knowledge, which in the end would be useful. And so then when I get to CERN, it's just frustrating. When, you know, when you, one, of the things, one of the reasons why you should get your kids to teach your kids to code is that well, then they can look at a computer and realize that it can be different, realize that they can program it to be different. And so I'm at CERN, and all these systems that are incompatible 
And I, you know, I, if I'm sitting on one computer system, I can't get information on the other one. I have to log on into it separately and have to learn a completely different program to get at the help system or the documentation system. And at CERN, because CERN is a great place to invent the web, because lots and lots of different documentation systems came from all over the world. So there's a lot of frustration, personal frustration for me, uh, uh, and an idea also that I wanted to have really good collaborative tools for my, uh, the people I was working with. And so after, then when, when you realize, you know, it could be simpler, and the web is really basically a very, very simple idea, a very simple design, then after that, it just niggles you until you get a chance to fix it. And credit, huge credit to my boss, Mike, the guy who wrote uh, Bakeman in Exciting, uh, when we discovered it in his, <laughs> uh, the, my, my memo in his things after he died, uh, we realized that, ah, if he hadn't have thought vague but exciting, uh, <laughs> if he, maybe he'd, if he'd have thought exciting but vague, he wouldn't allow me to do it. But he did allow me to do it in, in, uh, in my spare time, which was brilliant. So fr from the first, what seems startling when we go back and read this as history is your uh, desire to have something that was flat and non-hierarchical, that it wouldn't have a command node, that it wouldn't uh, have that uh, top-down structure, but that there'd be links to allow you to access things uh, sort of the way the brain accesses information. Did that threaten anybody at CERN? Because when you have a flatter system and no hierarchy to tell you, yes, you can see that, no, you can't, um, people are sometimes threatened. Did you get pushback from people? That is interesting. I, yes, it's decentralized, I think, is the word we're using now for that aspect mm -hmm. of the web. There's no center. You don't, it's permissionless space. The internet, was in the, the internet was a permissionless space. I didn't have to ask myself to create a new pro protocol. The web was a permissionless space. It was very important. In a way, if you were the sort of person, yes, there were a few people uh, who were upset because their version of, you know, what, uh, of the solution to all these documentation problems was that everybody should put all of their data on their machine. Mm -hmm. So they should all go on the mainframe and it should all be converted into a particular format. It should go into Microsoft Word or it should go into SGML. And, and so, when we, so there were a huge number of systems where people had staked their, a lot of effort and invested a lot of their career in building something where everybody had to do it their way. Some of them also, and, and, and also the structures, some of them had a, a hierarchical structure that you had to fit into. Some of them had a matrix structure you had to fit into, but always you had to fit into their structure. So looking at that, the reason that people just refused to go along with those systems was people wanted to have their own structure. And a and mess of hypertext links actually, you know, if, you if you want to make a tree, you can do that with hypertext links. If you want to make a matrix, you can do that. So we mapped, we made some web servers which, which you could explore the matrices with, and you, we made web servers which you could explore the trees with, and everybody could sit happy in their matrix or in their tree, uh, whichever they found useful, and then they could all be connected into the wider web. But the wider web always has to be a web. It always, you must always be able to link anything to anything. That's the power of it. So again, looking back at how this happened 30 years ago, I was struck, uh, Sir Tim, uh, by not just the, the power of this idea, but the power of the particular tools that you created that would make it uh, happen make it make it uh, possible for computer users to actually enter this web. There's some uh, initials that are now universally familiar. You see them every day. 
uh, but they began with Tim's ideas for how to organize information. To name documents, you wanted a universal document identifier, which came to be known as a URL. You wanted uh, uh, to have a, a, a tool to help uh, transfer hypertext, which became HTTP, which we see in the basic address for any document. You wanted a language that would allow um, these uh, links to be established and to create pages, and that ended up being hypertext markup language or HTML. I mean, the, these, it's the, these are the basic building blocks of this world 30 years later. I want to ask you about, about the tool creation part of it, because it sounds like it's the combination of this very creative, reflective intelligence, and then the hobbyist who actually wants to build the thing yeah. and get the wire. And So t tell us about making the tools. So uh, the, th I, the key point was, because uh, uh, I didn't really have, any, uh, I didn't have an excuse for working out on the web, but in fact then Mike uh, Sandel, he noticed that I'd, uh, I was very keen on the next computer. So the next computer was the one that Steve Jobs made as a rebel when he left uh, Apple and started Next. Next was a beautiful box, very neat machine, all kinds of really wonderful things about it. Uh, and including, uh, the, uh, including it, it had a, an app-making app. It had a, a user interface builder, and ha it has an uh, application builder. And so that was, it was the first computer to come along with tools for building apps. So what Mike said is, look, you've, you, you're very keen on the next, let's buy one, okay, and we should do it to evaluate it for the rest of CERN to see how it works. Kick the tires, and kicking the tires, I mean you should develop a program on it. And if it so you should just, you should develop some play program, uh, you know, do a chess game or something, or how about that hypertext thing you were talking about? And he had this twinkle in his eye. <laughs> this is your excuse to take, get a next, fire out the latest thing in interface technology. And you know, the, the program I used then was brilliant. You know, it's a new project, name a project, worldwide web dot app. Yeah, they were called dot app. That's where dot, you know, dot app on their phone comes from. Uh, uh, name a project, you know, create, uh, you could just create the menus by dragging and dropping. You know, then when you created the menu structure and uh, the, uh, drag and, drag and drop all the, uh, uh, all the different panels you want, and then you just, uh, basically a lot of that, the developer of the app has been done, and then you just have to write the code behind it, uh, write the code to parse, to, to handle HTML and HTTP. Designing HTML and HTTP was really, really easy because I was the only one doing it. Mm. You know, that was a, a magnificent moment because nobody was looking over my shoulder, really. And now, and, and, you know, pretty soon, of course, it was really important that everybody else on the planet could have a work, uh, could work on the standards and all the international collaboration behind it was, has been really, really special and, and has led to a much bigger and more powerful versions of HTML, but it was really neat to be able to just do it by myself and just write down. So I just wrote, I have a web page which had the definition of the mock-up language of HTML, a web page which had the vision of the HTTP protocol, wrote the code, put it together, and basically I started doing it in, in September. I had it running by... Uh, by the, by before Christmas, uh, people say that I had it running on Christmas Day. Actually, no, it was just whimsical. I, the version number on the was uh, I just put uh, one two two five as the, on the version number because I released it with a Chris, for Christmas Day. But actually, soon was closed on Christmas Day. I had to get it all working before the uh, before the holiday. And actually, uh, yes, it was exciting, but it wasn't anything as, uh, like as exciting as our first baby was due on the 24th of, of, <laughs> de of December. So I had to get, so I got the way of working before, uh, in, at the end of November, 
uh, because I wanted to be able to sort of wrap it up and go on. And, uh, and this was a baby uh, was, in fact, uh, she was late, but she was uh, she, she waited no. for Christmas for her. But uh, that was such a so much bigger thing. Actually, You're shaming all of us. Not only did you <laughs> invent this uh, totally world transforming uh, uh, technology, but you also were a good dad. I mean, that's uh, uh, so I just I, I, as you describe this, I, I, I'm curious. We all wonder about the moments of creativity that are, are world transforming. You know, it's, it's said that uh, uh, Handel wrote the Messiah in a trance, you know, as if he was just taking dictation and the notes fell into his head and often creative people have similar descriptions of these uh, great moments. Mark Andreessen has written about uh, creating mosaic uh, a web browser just in a, in a kind of trance, staying up all night in a fever was was this like 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 that this this period you described from October to uh, early December um, did you feel you were in a trance taking dictation or was it a, a more conscious effort uh, not trance like I, I think Mark's trance largely came from a huge amount of coffee he's just quite positive if I remember but uh, so the uh, it, but it, well, but that process is really really interesting. So yeah, um, yeah. The, the way things come to you after you've, uh, you know, they seem to come to you in the shower. Uh, they seem to come to you when you're not thinking about them. Uh, when you, uh, so going for walks on mountains. You know, yes, kids. When, if your kids are uh, rehearsal for exams, and my mother used to make sure we took a week off and went camping just before the exams, uh, because what happens in your brain. Uh, when you're not trying to make it happen, seems to be you know, creativity. Seems to be something that happens, which is subconscious, and therefore, being uh, eggy <laughs> consciously uh, doesn't seem to necessarily always be the good thing. So I think you need a balance between really intense concentrating on thinking what the problems are, prioritizing, thinking about which of the things you really need to solve, and then taking a break and letting your, your head your head has got all the solution pieces, but it doesn't have the solution. And that business putting together, uh, yeah, I found that very fascinating then. Uh, my dad found that pretty fascinating, and, and I still fascinating it now. And one of the, actually, part of the goal for the web was that's the creative process with a person is when your brain just decides by itself subconsciously to put, find a way to put together all the pieces. Imagine you have a big problem, like a climate, how to solve climate change or discover cancer, and the pieces of the problem are in different people's brains, but they're connected on the internet. So can the web be a place? But, so a goal for the web, it should be a collaborative place where wherever I have an idea, I can very easily put it into the web. And whenever, and as I, want, as I wander around the space looking at other people's ideas, I can pick them up and I can connect them together. So the necessity to be able to link anything to anything to say, oh, you're thinking that? Well, I've been thinking this. And so the way people work now with GitHub and Gitter to a certain extent can, uh, can, uh, is maybe an attempt to do that. I wanted to do that for the software teams that I was working with, to have the space where we would do the creativity thing, but in, we would do it between multiple minds. That's still my goal for the web. So let me move from the sublime, and that truly was an extraordinary description, um, to the very crass. Um, some people, like me, wonder, why didn't 
Sir Tim patent these amazing tools? Uh, and I'm just curious about the, the answer to that. Did it ever occur to you, uh, in addition to being this way to bring the world together and, and uh, you know, harness human creativity, there's a heck of a way to make money here. Uh, did you think about that? Uh, absolutely. Uh, although I didn't, I must say, if I'd been at MIT, I would have had a lot of people helping me be become an entrepreneur. CERN just didn't have that uh, function of spinning off s startups. So there wasn't, a, so I didn't have a lot of uh, role models there. But one thing was clear. The main, th the principal objective was that the web should take off. That means that anything, people will put anything on the web. That's a really big ask. You can't also ask two cents a click. So uh, I knew that if I had uh, made, put, if uh, I had gone out and patented it, and Cern had licensed the, the rights to my startup, that it would have stopped there. People would have made all kinds of competing webs. We wouldn't have got the one web. It's a huge ask for everybody to give something a URL. You can't patent URLs at the same time. And there was a very, there was another uh, one indication of this was uh, from this, uh, what happened to Gopher. Gopher was another system. The World Wide Web was taking off, but actually the Gopher protocol from University of Minnesota was taking off faster. Mm. I, it, it was the talk of the net. Yeah, and it was uh, the, the traffic on, uh, the Gopher traffic on the NSF back, back, backbone was going up exponentially. And then at one point, there was a, you can look at on the timeline exactly when a message was sent out from the University of Minnesota. And they said, maybe not for academics, uh, and uh, not for the client, but maybe if you're running a server, and if you're commercial, and not now, maybe later, potentially, and very small, but there could possibly be royalties payable. Mm -hmm. And at that point, when that message went around the web, people came to me and said, we're dropping Gopher. We don't want to work free for the University of Minnesota. What, uh, hello? Uh, and so, they, so the intense pressure on CERN to say, we will not allow royalties. The internet draft, the backbone traffic of Gopher plummeted at that point, and the web traffic came up past that, and the web and it eventually took over, and it only took over because it was royalty-free. The uh, 1993 resolution that the CERN directors made and rubber stamp that Robert Cahill, my buddy, uh, fought very hard to get. That was a critical point of the web. And similarly, 10 years later, when the World Wide Web Consortium companies, when we have a standards body, the standards body realized, actually, the royalty fee is really, really important. We have to have a stand, we have to have our process. So it wasn't, uh, ooh, I forgot to patent it. Bother, I should have been a gazillionaire. <laughs> uh, I'm still, and, and I, yeah, I have nothing about being a gazillionaire. Uh, if you have an internet startup, do send me, uh, send me shares. Uh, so, the, the, so, yeah, being a gazillionaire is fine, but, uh, but charging royalties on the web isn't. It wouldn't have worked. That's fascinating. If I'm understanding you, it's, it's precisely the fact that it was not a, a, a revenue model. You could say like ARPANET, which you know created the initial way of transferring IP packets. Yeah, nobody's, uh, nobody's paying royalties on the other on the internet. Nobody, nobody paid royalties on TCP and on IP. So that that the the, 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 the this incredible diffusion may be uh, fundamentally uh, necessarily related to the fact that that this was not a money making proposition. Uh, in the I think crucial. 
So um, I, I thought we might um, now, um, in this arc of conversation on the 30th anniversary of the web, talk about, about how it was built out and, and what that felt like. Let me remind you, if you want to ask uh, questions of Sir Tim, the hashtag is uh, post live. Uh, and you can send send questions to me, uh, and I'll I'll uh, record them. So um, you said on the twentieth anniversary in two thousand nine, the web as I envisioned it, we have not yet seen. So for all of the growth in that period, uh, something that you were hoping for had not yet been realized. And I, I guess I'd like to ask you to describe. In those early years, maybe in that in that first decade, then second decade, what your experience of this technology was, what, what seemed to you to be great, what worried you as you watched it, we'll get to the kind of core problems we see now. But in those build-out years, what did it look like to you? So during the build-out years, I mean, the, remember the web started when uh, at, when John Perry Barlow had written his cyber uh, his manifesto for cyberspace which said, we are going to build a wonderful world and we won't need all your laws and all your nations. And sort of he and John Lennon sort of uh, said, well, so you, you could imagine, if you look at, look at it from their point of view, the, the internet doesn't really have nations. So why won't it be a wonderful, non-national uh, space of peace and love? Why won't we all, as we build, break down these barriers where we have suddenly we're in a world where nations aren't a thing. Nations have been, uh, nation, national boundaries, national competition has been the cause of wars. Surely without nations we won't have wars. And that was, uh, that was a kind of simplistic way that some people looked at it. Uh, and I don't think, you know, I, I never had this sort of utopian uh, expectations of it. But then when you looked at what it was like to blog, when, the, when blogging took off, you know, you could in the early days, you could buy a computer, you could get put web server software and put blog software on it and you could write a blog and you could plug it into the internet and other people would be able to read your blog and they would, and, uh, they would read it if they found other people had linked to it and they, were, and they would, when they read your blog, they would link to other people's blogs. And the spirit in the blogosphere then was that people were pouring huge uh, ridiculous amounts of time, sometimes their spare time, uh, midnight uh, our time into making their blog about their particular pet hobby. And they were finding that as they did that, all the other blogs around them also became really, really well done. And so the press was, was finding it hard to explain to people who hadn't been online why, you know, what, what was so special about being able to, about the, this huge growing value of the blogosphere and also what it was like to be part of it. So I think when people felt that they were, they were felt they were enabled, they said when they published it, they published their own blog and it was on the same level as the Washington Post's new website. You know, people could link to either and they would be judged in the same way. And the, the reward was that on the, for the blogosphere, largely, was the counter at the bottom of my, your blog is this number. 342 people have read your blog and you go to bed. Oh my God! Six hundred forty-two people <laughs> read my blog. <laughs> okay, that was uh, you know, the thrill of being read was what what drove it, and so and, and that space where people were just trying to provide a service to humanity in what they wrote, and so and so, so, and, uh, and humanity was rewarding it by clicking that little counter. 
that was a space that worked very well. So it, if you like, it was a system. You got to look at, it, look at it as a social machine where the people are, uh, if, uh, if you like it, the blogosphere is this mechanical thing which connected people together. People worked their heart out and ended up producing something of very great uh, value. Wikipedia came along similarly. So you'd be forgiven for thinking, this has got, you know, we could end up with a web which is really amazing and ends up. And, and so, uh, and in a way, the blogosphere was great. Uh, it led to also the, the, the fact that the value was mostly in the small and medium sites. The, the most of the browsing, most of the time, and most of the value was in these small sites. It wasn't, yeah, there was, you know, there was a Washington, there, were, there, there was a, there were big, uh, big channels, but basically they didn't dominate at all. And people found that, that the, this long tail, you know, the, the, the book about long tail, uh, the long tail is this phenomenon that it's all, all of the value is produced by the small and uh, medium people. That meant that there was a huge amount of value, and it also meant that people felt part of it because they knew that they were part of it. They were very enabled. Yep, those, that, so that, if you like, was the spirit of the web while, uh, in the good old days. Uh, <clears throat> that that uh, sense of, of let a let a let a hundred blogs uh, bloom, mm -hmm. um, we remember. I remember, and I, I wonder if you do too, uh, a period when um, this space began to get sharper and nastier. The, 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 some of the blogs became more strident, uh, more ideological. It's um, uh, part of the world that we're living in now, which we'll come to. But do you re remember a, a way in which um, this pervasive technology, sometimes combined with anonymity, that shielded people, let them say inflammatory things they wouldn't say if their names were attached? Do you remember a, a period when that was beginning to seem troublesome to you? So I don't really. Uh, so I suppose the, uh, the blogosphere wasn't really what happened. It was the social networks. Mm -hmm. Where it happened, and I suppose the, the, the first thing you notice about social network is that you don't get this virtuous cycle of people desperately trying to get their thing linked to in the open web, because when you write something on a, a social network, it's the social network's algorithm which decides who gets to read it, uh, and, and so you, people may uh, they may give you likes, and so you get the, uh, instead of having the, the hit counter go up, you get the like counter going up, and you get a sort of the dopamine kick from that, but the but one way of looking at it is, is just to say, well, the social network, you know, the blogosphere was one system, the social network is a different system. It works in a different way and it has different results. And one of the ways it works is it allows people to keep track of all their old friends and keep in touch with family, uh, even if they're, they're all in different countries. And so it, uh, to a certain extent, it does wonderful things. But then on the other hand, the whole, uh, I think some people will say, well, you can point at advertising. Because so long as you're actually paid for by advertising, so long as at the end of the day, the people who last out, the people who are actually generating content, who are either writing content, who are writing programs that generate content, uh, those people, when those people, uh, the, if uh, they are in the end, uh, in fact, rewarded just by advertising, then even if they are sort of innocent kids in Venice, Macedonia, the famous case where during the Trump campaign, they, were treat, uh, they had various websites, they would tweet things, point to the websites, and they found, and Google ads 
was rewarding them. And they would just, you know, they would keep track on the wall, not of how many hits they got, but how many money, how, much, how many dollars they got from Google. And Google would reward them for engagement. And they found they got more engagement if they put things which weren't actually true. Yep. So they were trained. It wasn't their fault. They were, you know, they were parts of the system. They were trained by the Google ad system. And they, the guy on a BBC interview, one of them said, Hillary really wanted Trump to win. Yeah, that was my head, that was the best headline. I more or less, you know, more on, but, but, you know, have a Mercedes which I can buy on the basis of thing, that headline and things like it. Because, and it's the art of, of uh, he was very proud of the fact that all the, he trained all the local school kids uh, to be able to think what crazy headline will make people click. So Hillary really wanted uh, Trump to win, just made everybody click. And so everybody went to the website, he cashed in, Nobody, everybody was frustrated by the fact they went to some stupid website. They probably got sales insurance or something. Uh, and, and so it's, to a certain extent, you can say it's a broken system. And some, people's, uh, some people maintain that if it's based on advertising, it's never going to be healthy. Uh, so, uh, but on the other hand, that's a very simplistic way of looking at it, too. So we, we have a few questions uh, arriving uh, on, on Twitter. And I want to ask you one of them. Um, Bill uh, on Twitter asks, when you invented the internet, Web. did you ever think I it would be that. used by foreign adversaries for cyber attacks or election interference? Did that, when did that occur to you as a possibility? So, well, first of all, did I imagine that bad people would use it? Yep. And so when people, you know, initially for the first 20 years, when people said, Tim, there's bad stuff. You know, there's bad people on the web. I say, well, you know, the web is a mirror of humanity. If you look at humanity, you will find bad people. You'll find them if you walk down the street, uh, depending on which street. <laughs> some more than others. If you go to the website, you know, some websites more than others, you will find bad stuff. Don't go there. And the, in general, the rule for me and all my friends uh, and colleagues was don't browse the garbage websites. And so to a certain extent, so we were in a filter bubble uh, and then at a certain point where we realized, I think with the, when those two elections went down, the Brexit and Trump elections uh, went down, where actually the, uh, it's not just about there being junk out there which, you sh which we should all ignore. There is junk out there which people believe, which people are being manipulated into believing by very, very clever advanced operators, some of them uh, deliberate and... Uh, uh, and malicious, and some of them, just like the people in Macedonia, sort of got just folded into their commercial operation. But um, so I think at that point, the I did a big step back. I think the Web Foundation did a big step back. A lot of, a lot of people did a big sort of step back and say, well, let's, the, the, let's reconsider the Web. We talk, the, the Web Foundation says that the Web should serve humanity. What's going on here? Uh, so we didn't, uh, well, I, uh, I, I, I didn't predict that there'd be people would be, uh, 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 other nation states would be hacking Western elections. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, there has been a stream of, you know, it's not total surprise because there has been a constant battle over cybersecurity. You know, underneath the, this web, there is, a, there is a constant battle of people uh, of people trying to attack companies, attract people, individuals, and attract organizations, and attack governments. 
because if they can, they can get an advantage. And so we, uh, and every now and again, we have our cybersecurity disaster because a lot of information ends up getting uh, uh, stolen, for example. But, uh, and to a certain extent, that was a cybersecurity, uh, cybersecurity failure. But the problem with an election is once it's gone down, once the election has gone down, mm-hmm. you, can't, uh, you can't rewind it, you can't rewind those votes. And it's very hard, in fact, to do the analysis and the research to find out actually what, what happened. So that was, yeah, that was a, I think, a lot of the world at that point took a, did a double take. We'll, we'll come back to the question of, of how we might better uh, police and, uh, and contain the, the dangers in a minute, but I just would note that this beautiful uh, interconnected world of information uh, is now seen certainly by the Russian government, and I, I am afraid by many governments, as a domain of war. The information space is, like other spaces, an area where conflict is fought. And unfortunately, it's not a conflict that's either an on-off switch, it's declared or not declared. It's more like a rheostat. It goes up and down. And that's the world, unfortunately, that we, that we, that we live in. Just b- before we leave this kind of build-out uh, phase of the, of the uh, World Wide Web, I'm curious about your own social media behavior. I looked last night, and I didn't see you on Twitter. So, uh, and I looked on Facebook and I saw a Facebook support page for you, but I didn't see, uh, I, you know, I tried to make Sir Tim my friend, um, but uh, uh, so but tell us a little bit about your own, how, how social are you on social media? Uh, so, uh, so Twitter, when it comes to professionally announcing things like this, I do have a Twitter account and uh, I think I just tweeted about the being here, for example, but, I, but uh, so, yeah, to get to, to get lots of people to, uh, professionally, I do that. I, you know, I won't tell you what I had for breakfast. Sorry. Uh, uh, <laughs> so, uh, so I use. Um, so I have. Otherwise, I have closed. So well, I, sh- I share what uh, I share what I had for breakfast with family and with friends in uh, in spaces that are closed. So you don't. That's my my preference. We do have a, a, a project. Uh, this in this with a solid platform. Uh, I the uh, is this new thing which developers which is not ready for for uh, users but it is ready for uh, developers uh, to get involved. And, and so, in that point of view, I'm developing a, a bunch of apps for the new new world, and I use that to a certain extent. And I've used that I've used that sort of uh, solid software, in fact, for doing things like doing my taxes, which is boring, but also uh, and keeping track of things I have to do for work. I keep a track of invitations I get to do things uh, using solid tools. And so, uh, and also, uh, solid is something where you can have a chat about more or less anything. So, open it. There are lots of, uh, lots of solid chats that I use personally. And that's the world which will come with the, uh, with, uh, as, the uh, as developers help us make the, the, the solid world ready for. Uh, ready for users. So that's, that's a perfect uh, inflection point for the last uh, uh, part of this uh, arc of our conversation, which is talking about how to fix what's wrong. And you've been devoting a lot of thought to that. Um, uh, 
I'd love it if you'd ex explain the technology that underlies uh, uh, solid. But maybe a starting point before that is just to ask you about uh, what you announced last November, the contract for the web, in which you thought we need to have a contract between uh, technology companies, social media companies, users about the web and kind of, if I understood you, web hygiene. Explain what that contract would be and then tell us a little bit about Solid. So the contract for the web, uh, so that's the, uh, it's a web foundation initiative which is more complicated than uh, just a, a campaign to push for freedom. You know, we've, we had to do that at times, you know, when the internet has been blocked we know we've said no censorship, you know, no spying, and that's easy to do. But then, when you look at the way the things are broken at the moment, and when uh, when you uh, when you can't just outlaw fake news, you have to. Uh, it's much more complicated. You have to try to produce social networks where people are led to naturally to become more more constructive and to end up producing more truthful results and or more, make the process of discovering what to believe more effective and the process of discovering what to uh, deciding what to do more effective that's what we call democracy uh, so uh, it's complicated and so the, con the the contract for the web that uh, yeah we announced uh, in uh, November is now it, now this is the time to join uh, join the, uh, whether you are a government or a company or an uh, individual go to webfoundation.org slash for the web and if, when you join, that means uh, I think these these principles or that you have these nine principles that you have are important, uh, and and I'm prepared to be part of the discussion about how we actually make them happen, because there are times, yeah, sometimes some part of that will be no spying, but part of it will be when it comes to hate speech and free speech, we know that as issue we know that. Uh, that Germany and Texas tend to have, you know, have different traditions and where they draw the line between one and the other. Uh, so working out a way by which uh, different social networks can find, uh, try to resolve uh, problems like that. Uh, there are lots of, the, uh, for example, looking at privacy, trying to uh, ensure privacy, doing it in a way uh, that works, giving people control of their data, but also basically if the contract for the web is about what should you as government, if you, and a lot of you are uh, in the city, if you're in government, if you're working, if you're writing down policy, you're proposing bills, then the contract for the web is partly about here's, no, here's what we, the, all the people all over the world who've looked at the contract for the web feel is important for that bill. Or if you're in your company for what is important for your terms of service or for an individual, for your personal behavior. So as individuals can be involved, partly because individuals also need to think about how they react on the web. Think about whether what they're just about to retweet is a constructive thing to retweet. Uh, but also individuals, of course, we know people, the common question about the contract is, they're going to come up with all these rules, and but who's going to police them? And one of the answers is, is well, people. People are going to keep track of what companies do. So if a company signs up to the contract for the web and says, these are the principles that we agree to, and then they seriously mess up those principles in practice, the people, you know, then 
the, cons the voice of consumers can be, can be huge. The voice of the citizen can be huge when, uh, when the government messes up. So a very important part of it is, so come to the, sign up for the contract for the web, be part of figuring out exactly what the details should be. Uh, it's a really important phase for the web because yes, we are, the, the, the utopian arc was fine, uh, uh, but now it's pointing towards potentially very dystopian future. We need, the contract for the web is about locking in a mid-course correction, a change of momentum, pointing it back towards constructiveness, back towards um, science, facts, and democracy. And I, I'm assuming that part of this vision is that the contract for the web would be signed in Chinese and Russian, and it would be pervasive. Everywhere that people are using this technology, they would try to have the same norms, standards, hold their governments, their companies um, uh, compliant uh, with the same rules Absolutely. that you're proposing. Yeah. That, that's a powerful... So France has joined, Germany has joined, Ghana has joined. So, uh, for example, so they will; those countries will be discussing uh, from their different points of view uh, all these uh, important issues. And, and tell us a, a bit about Solid, which, as I understand it, is a, is a, 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 a you, you explain it, but it sounds like a platform that lets us decide, lets us gives us greater control over our information and who can see it. But just describe what, what the basic solid uh, uh, precepts are. Okay, so the, first of all, reiterate, if you're a developer, do come to uh, inrupt.com and uh, do get involved with Inrupt is your, is your, is your uh, company. Is a startup. Which is, which is building the... The dot com. If you're a user, sorry, this isn't ready for you yet. We'll let you know when it is. Uh, so uh, we don't want people flocking out to try to turn it on and say, eh, it doesn't work. Um, uh, but it, it is exciting. The, the, the idea of Solid is that we separate the apps from the data storage. So it's as though when you take, a, you know, suppose you take a roll of film on your camera and you uh, roll a film, as we call it, and, you, and it says, where do you want to upload this film to? Uh, and you have a choice. So at the moment you can, uh, yeah, so for example, your camera might now say, do you want to put it in Dropbox? Uh, and uh, do you want to put it in Google Drive? Uh, do you want to put it on your home computer? Do you want to put it onto the computer at work where you're doing that project? And so with, uh, with Solid, we call each of these uh, places where you've got a place to store data, a pod. As it, you can think of it as personal online data store, but it's just pod, pod works. And, and you can have a personal pod, you can have a work pod. Your work, for example, may decide, for, uh, <coughs> the Washington Post may decide, we're going to use lots of really cool solid apps. And if you want to use solid apps to, for just for, for your development work, if you're uh, uh, review, reviewing, if you want to work together on articles using solid, go ahead. But all of the data must be stored on the Washington Post solid pod because we might want to manage security and because we want to manage the backup. We want to make sure the posterity's got a copy of it. And so as long as you use the Washington Post solid pod, you can use all kinds of solid apps. And in particular, you can use all those ones which are branded as, uh, as, as uh, beneficent apps. One of the neat things down the road is that, uh, in fact, we were talking about the, uh, the push to uh, the, the fake news um, phenomenon pushed a lot of people to, uh, to decide that they wanted to pay a journalist to make news, to figure out what's going on for them. So they signed it, so, that, so they got subscriptions to. God so, bless them. 
uh, God bless them. So things like the Washington Post, things like the Guardian, places where people do do serious uh, do serious journalism, and they and and this uh, and meanwhile. They are dis the assumption is that any app they use on the internet is going to abuse them. Any app, the assumption is any app they're going to do is going to be just mining their data and manipulating them. So, with Solid, we have actually, because we, with Solid, you will have access to huge amounts of data. In the Solid world, you will have access to lots of different types of data. You'll have access to all your financial data because of open banking. You will have, open, you know, there'll be open health. There will be, you will have access, in fact, to a lot more data about yourself than Amazon even has now. Because you will know all the things you bought, and Amazon only knows the things you bought for data. So you will have access to so much data that you can then, it is very, very beneficial for you to run programs which allow you to run your life, to figure out what to give the kids for birthdays, uh, to figure out where to take that vacation, and so on. You can run, you'll be able to run very powerful programs and, and you will pay, you will want to pay somebody to write them. You will want to pay a community or you, maybe you'll get open source community ones. But, but these programs which are beneficent, which are, if they have a beneficent brand, then the idea is, it's like, you know, in a way, it's like a journalist. A, they've taken the Hippocratic Oath. They have said, I am writing this app for the benefit of the user. The app works for the user. So when I'm using this app, I know it's not, there won't be any advertising. If it takes stores data, it stores data in order to help me. So that's a massive change. Solid, Solid is, a, is going to be a ubiquitous data storage system, which will give people complete control of their data. Beneficent apps are one of the things, one of the movements I hope we'll see, because I want to see it. <laughs> I'm going to write some, and I'm going to use them. And one of the things I'm going to enjoy doing is making sure that my kids and grandkids use our, uh, live in a world where I've paid for apps that they use which do not abuse them, because I can do that. So uh, that's, yeah, that's the, the solid idea is exciting, and uh, that's what keeps me busy now. So, uh, Sir Tim, uh, ladies and gentlemen, um, this is a conversation that I would love to keep going for uh, most of the rest of today. Um, uh, my apologies to the excellent questions that we had on Twitter, which we, we couldn't get to, get to by the end of our time. I just want to say that it's such a privilege to um, be with someone who has really transformed our world. There's no other way to put it. And to see not just the uh, brilliance of the idea that created this, but the concern. It's sort of like a, like a parent who stays interested in the child as the child grows and gets into mischief and then gets into terrible mischief. And, and uh, the parent is still watching and has some pretty good ideas about, about how to I'm not going to send the kid to reform school, but it sounds like um, there's some good ideas for adding new discipline and control. So this is really a treat for all of us. Thank you so much. Happy 30th anniversary, World Wide Web, and Sir Tim. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, and uh, thanks for covering us. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.